Good morning. Thank you for being here today. We're glad that you're here. If you're visiting, thank you for coming our way. We hope and pray that you will feel welcome here. We want you to know how much we appreciate you honoring us today by coming. And if you're looking for a church home, as always, we invite you to come back and join hands with us. We'd love to have you join hands and be a part of the work here. I do want to just reiterate what Zach said earlier, how much we appreciate all the work that went into yesterday. It was a great day. We had just an unbelievable number of people that were present, a lot of people from the community. And so we thank you for that and all who shared in making that such a great day. I do want to mention one other thing. On the 29th of this month, I, we it was mentioned that we're going to be airing Anchor the Soul on ABC Channel 24. That will occur every Sunday at 10 a.m. We want to encourage our friends and neighbors, family members to be watching this program if they are unable to attend a worship service. And we hope and pray that we'll make a lot of good contacts from this. But as you know, television is not cheap. We are getting a phenomenal price to air this program. The program that had previously been airing at this time, they were paying over $1,500 a week. And we were offered this program, or rather this time slot, for $700 a week. And so I know that the elders, by faith, have launched out into this endeavor. And if you can possibly help maybe provide maybe a little bit more support than what you have. I know that times are tough and sometimes we don't have the finances to really be able to, to help. But if you can, I would encourage you to consider doing so. It will, look, it'll give you the opportunity to help share the gospel in this area. And so we can partner together in that. And we'd love to have you help out if you can. All right, we're looking at 1 Kings today. I want to call your attention to 1 Kings, and I want to begin by looking at 1 Kings chapter 16 with you, and then we're going to look at chapter 18. And the first thing that I want to do is just make an examination of the text, and then some application. But as we think about our study today, we're talking about how to live faithful in a wicked world. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have lived during the days of Noah. The Bible tells us, Moses tells us, that every imagination of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. It was a bad, bad time in the history of the human family. And you know the story. God destroyed the world, that ancient world, by means of a, of a flood. Someone said on one occasion that God cleansed the world of sinners on that occasion, but He did not cleanse the world of sin. Sin was still a problem, and the only answer to sin was Jesus Christ. He was the answer then, He's the answer today. In our study today, I want to look at a particular text that I think will help us to appreciate how to stay faithful in a wicked world. And I want to begin by calling your attention to chapter 16. I want to talk a little bit about a man by the name of Ahab. And I want you to just consider for a moment his conduct 
or his character. Ahab, of course, was one of the kings in the history of the northern kingdom. And there's really nothing that we can say good about Ahab. At least I can't think of anything positive to say about this man. But rather, what I read about him tells me that he was a very, very, very bad man. And not only was he bad, but he married a bad woman, a woman by the name of Jezebel. So note with me in chapter 16 for a moment, beginning in verse 29. We read in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. It came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Jeroboam, as you well know, was the instigator of false worship when the kingdom was divided. He set up two golden calves, one in Dan and the other in Bethel. And Jeroboam sadly caused the nation of Israel, in many respects, to plunge into idolatry. Or he helped to lay the, really, I guess we would say he helped to lay the foundation, pave the way. And so the text tells us that it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. And this would have been a female pagan deity. And the Bible says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so what the record has to say about Ahab is not flattering at all. And as you look at his life, the first thing that really stands out, the association that union with Jezebel. That was in clear violation of what God had said to Moses in the long ago. They were not to marry outside the nation of Israel. Why? Because God knew that if they were to marry outside the nation, then idolatry would become a problem. They would forsake Him. They would turn from Him. That's exactly what happened. You remember what Paul said many years ago, evil companionship corrupts good morals. We may have noble intentions, but the people that we associate with can have a direct bearing on how we think and act in the world. Sometimes for good, sometimes for evil. In this context, it wasn't for good. And then, not just his association, but his actions. I mean, here's a guy that helped to pave the way for the nation of Israel to become further entrenched in idolatrous practices. Now, having said that, let's look over in chapter 18 for a minute. In chapter 18, there was a severe famine in Samaria. 
God instructed Elijah in the long ago to go and to meet, or rather to meet up, with King Ahab. And the Bible tells us, down in verse 3, that Ahab called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house, or he was over his house, like a steward. And the Bible says that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and fed them with bread and water. Ahab then said to Obadiah, Go into the land, to all the springs of water, to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. They divided the land between them to explore. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went another way by himself. Now look at verse 7. As Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him, fell on his face and said, Is that you, my Lord, Elijah? And he answered, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. And then you can just imagine the fear that swept the heart of Obadiah. He asked, How have I sinned that you're delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when you said he is not here, or when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, Go tell your master, Elijah is here. It shall come to pass as soon as I am gone out from you. But the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to you by, was it not reported to, to my Lord what I did to Jezebel when she killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here and he'll kill me? And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before, before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now I want you to look at verse 17 because in verses 17 and 18, this is what we want to key in on for a minute. The Bible says that when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, now imagine, here is a very wicked king involved in idolatrous practices. He has joined forces with a very evil woman by the name of Jezebel. She has undermined God's people, destroyed the prophets of old, and so in verse 18, or rather verse 17, Ahab said, Is that you, O trouble of Israel? Some translations say, O thou troubler of Israel. Now here's a question. Who was the problem here? Was it Elijah? Was Elijah the problem? Was he the one causing all of this trouble in the nation? Not at all. But rather the troubler 
to the nation of Israel was King Ahab and his wife. And so he asked the question, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And then here's what Elijah the prophet said. I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now the rest of the story, there is a showdown on Mount Carmel. And ultimately, Elijah wins the day. But what I want you to see in this has to do with the accusation made against Elijah the prophet. This man identified him as the source of trouble in the nation of Israel. That was a lie, wasn't it? He wasn't the root of the trouble. But rather Ahab and his wife, they had undermined the kingdom. They were not for God, they were against God. They weren't for God's people, they were against God's people. So what's the application to us today? Let's just talk for a moment or two about our culture. Defining our culture. If someone were to ask you at work, school, in the neighborhood, maybe as you're out and about around town, if someone were to ask you point blank, can you sum up the conditions of the world we're living in, what would you say? Would you say that the nation that we live in is on a healthy track? That we are where we ought to be as a nation of people? Would you say that things are, from your estimation, good? Let me tell you how I would describe the cultural context in which we live. It is as corrupt and crooked as a barrel of snakes. We are living in a very corrupt age. Now that's not to say that people haven't been corrupt in days gone by. We just read about Elijah, Ahab, and his wife Jezebel, and they were about as corrupt as you can get. But you remember back in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, of course, in Isaiah chapter 1, identified, and listen, he's talking to God's people in this context. In verse 4, he identified them as a sinful nation, a brood or offspring of evildoers. He said, they are children of corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. And then he said, they have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. The picture painted by the prophet in the long ago, not positive, but rather very dark and dismal. And what the prophet is saying is, to God's people, number one, you're a sinful people. You are offspring of evildoers. You are children of those who corrupt. You have forsaken God, and now you have provoked the anger of Almighty God. You know, there are a lot of things that we want to do in the name of God. 
Our goal, our desire is to, leave, is to live in such a way so that we please Him. Now there are, there's a statement made by Isaiah that we just read a minute ago that ought to send a chill down our spine. Provoking God to anger? When God destroyed the ancient world by means of a flood, was He pleased with the crown of His creation? The answer, no. When God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, when they faced the wrath and anger of a holy God, Frightening, isn't it? And you remember Peter said, by way of commentary in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter identified, identifies in the long ago the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says that they serve as an example to all who will live ungodliness. Or to all who will live ungodly. Now look, that statement made by Peter, that's still good scripture. And what God is saying to His people through the inspired writer is we need to learn from history, don't we? I've said it many times. If there's anything we've ever learned from history, it is we haven't learned from history. So you go back and you look at the children of Israel, the northern kingdom, they went into, they went into captivity. The southern kingdom, they should have learned from their sister, but they didn't. So they end up in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. God spared a remnant so that He might bring the Christ into the world. By and large, God's people corrupt. No excuse for it, but they were. The northern kingdom. You can go back and look at every single king in the northern kingdom, and they were all rotten to the core. There's no excuse for that, but they were. Why? Because they ignored what God said. So number one, if I were to define the culture that we live in, I'd say number one, we live in a very corrupt culture. Secondly, I would say the culture that we're living in is one of confusion. Now again, there's no reason that we ought to be spiritually and morally confused in the world. But we are. Now look over in Isaiah chapter 5 and about verse 20. In Isaiah 5 verse 20, the prophet said, talking about the children of Israel, he said they call evil good and good evil. Confused, aren't they? So here's the question. Did they know the difference? Should they have known the difference between right and wrong? Truth and error? Well, the answer would be yes. Why? Because God gave them a law, didn't He? God gave them a law on Mount Sinai. That law was intended to govern their actions toward a holy God. And then it also was to govern their behavior between themselves. God had set up a covenant with the nation of Israel, that covenant was predicated or conditioned upon their obedience to Him. And they paid a heavy price when they chose to live in disobedience. But we're living in a day and time when people are confused morally and spiritually. I was on a panel this past week in Texas. 
And I made mention of the fact that in the 1940s, did you know that those who studied that era, that the conclusion of the people of that day was that divorce was deemed deviant behavior. That was 80 years ago. And the people who lived in this country, when they thought about divorce in their minds, that's abnormal. I mean, you think about, they viewed the termination of a marital contract, marriage vows, as deviant. 80 years later, what do people think about divorce? Don't think anything about it, do they? I mean, there's some folks, they trade husbands and wives like you might trade a car. Get tired of it, don't like it, trade it in. Is that God's will? We're living in a very confused moral climate. And here's what we have to understand. God's Word transcends culture. Culture changes, yes. Kingdoms come and go. But the Word of Almighty God does not change. The psalmist said many, many years ago, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. There are some things I don't have to question. I don't have to say, is this right? Is this wrong? Why? Because God settled it a long time ago. What God said about marriage. When Jesus was asked by the people of His day, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Remember what He said? Have you not read? People are confused today about the home and marriage and their responsibilities because they don't know God's Word. We've got the best manual ever written on the home, and we ignore it. And there are folks in our world today, they want to know what's going on and why are we facing all of these problems. I'll tell you why we're facing all these problems. We haven't taken time to read what the Creator said. When Jesus asked, Have you not read? He said, He that made them at the beginning made them male and female. When God created Adam, He recognized it was not good for him to be alone. So what did He do? He didn't make another animal. No, the Bible says that He caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam, and while in that sleep, He extracted a rib and made a woman and brought her to Adam. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now Jesus said, He that made them at the beginning made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. Now listen to him in Matthew 19, verse 6. What God has joined together, there are three parties involved in marriage. A husband, a wife, and God. And Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. I don't care what people say in this country about divorce. I don't care if they try to minimize it and say it's not a problem. Listen, the record says, one man, one woman for life. Now I can like it, I can dislike it, but it doesn't, it doesn't change the truth of Almighty God. So we live in a very confused age. But there's a second thing I want to share with you for a moment. The danger of compromise. First we put into context 
by way of definition, the culture that we live in. Corrupt and confused. But then, there is always the danger of conceding truth. Compromising. Now, you know, as a Christian, in the world that we now find ourselves, it is becoming more difficult to stand for what's right. And why is that? Because there is a lot of pressure being exerted in the world through the work of the devil. And so, there are times when it's very difficult for us. The opposition is so strong the easiest thing for us to do would be to roll over, concede, not say anything, not do anything. There is the danger of compromise. Rather than speaking up and standing up for what's right, we just sit on the sidelines. Someone said many years ago, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. If we don't like the direction that we're heading in this country, then the old adage, do something about it. We've got to understand we are at war. And you can go back and you can look at the New Testament, the early church. Now I mentioned just a moment ago Elijah. Elijah and Ahab, Elijah is standing as one of the great prophets of Almighty God. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop, one of those who appeared on that occasion was Elijah, standing for the great prophets of God who thundered His message in difficult times. And so here is Ahab, a very wicked and evil king, and he is calling God's spokesman a troubler of Israel. That was a lie, wasn't it? That was a false accusation made against a prophet of God. The key for us is to realize that God's people have always been in the minority. God's people have always been in the minority and they will always be in the minority. The question is, are we going to have the courage and conviction to stand up for what's right? And not just stand up, but also, will we speak up when it comes to divine truth? Go back and look at the early church. In the early church, once the New Testament church began, once it was up and running, the church faced an onslaught of opposition. The Jews in the days of the apostles... They were doing everything within their power to protect their hierarchy, that Jewish system. The Sanhedrin Council comprised of some 70, 71 people. And that governing Jewish body, they were not going to go down without a fight. And so time and again, you read about the Sanhedrin Council and the Jews and if you go back and you look at what the record has to say, 
There was interrogation. In many instances, there was intimidation. And number three, there was incarceration. Why do I bring that up? The reason is because there are a lot of folks today as a result of their quote-unquote investigation and interrogation. They have come to the conclusion that what they need to do is intimidate us. Intimidation is alive and well in America. If you don't believe what I'm saying, I encourage you to go back and just start reading where we are as a nation. You want to stand up for that baby in the womb? I've got news for you. You're going to have a fight on your hands. And there are folks in this country, they are as ungodly as we could ever describe them. They are ungodly. They want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with His Word. And they view us as enemy number one. And there is an all-out assault. Let me just say this. There are some folks in this country that are as corrupt and dishonest as any we've ever seen. And I can tell you this, there are some folks in our country, the leadership that they're providing, they have no idea what they're doing. Intimidation, yes. In some instances, incarceration. And it's only going to get worse not going to get better unless we change some things. It's going, to get, it's, going to get, it's going to continue to get worse and spiral out of control. When Jesus said in John chapter 3 that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light, that was an apt description of the Roman Empire. If the Lord Jesus were to, to describe the nation that we now live in, what would He say? Corrupt? Yes. Confused? Yes. Would he say that about Europe? You better believe it. What about the Middle East? Same thing. You know, John said the whole world lies in darkness under the sway of the wicked one. Now there are people in this country, they have declared war on us as God's people. I'm I'm here to tell you, they've declared war. You may not realize it, but they have declared war. I had the opportunity Friday with Jared to tape some television programs in Kentucky, Murray, Kentucky. We were with John DeBerry, who is a former state senator. He is now a consultant to Governor Lee in Tennessee. John has seen a lot when it comes to the political landscape. John said, let me tell you what, if we don't make some changes, we will lose this country. If changes are not forthcoming, we can mark it down, we're going to lose this country. Do you understand that? Do you realize that? The very freedoms that we enjoy and the liberties that we have in this country, if we don't stand up and speak out, we're going to lose it. There are folks right now 
that have paid a heavy price for trying in their heart of hearts to do what's right. Now, if they'll create bogus charges and lock people up because they don't like it, what do you think they're going to do to you? If they don't like what you believe and what you practice and what you say, what do you think they're going to do to you? When we stand up and begin preaching and teaching what the Bible has to say, do you think they're going to like it? When we stand up and say, you know what, in the context of Bible, one man, one woman for life, anything outside of that is a violation of God's Word. Now, I don't care what culture says. I don't care what people in Washington say. They do not define the law of God. They don't have the final say. Let me tell you what trumps everything. It's the Word of God. Do you believe that? It is the Word of the living God. So what then is the duty of a Christian? I submit to you this morning that number one, we need to be people who are light in a dark world. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the saints in Philippi, he said that you might be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, the children of God, now listen to him, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, now, that was true during the days of the Roman Empire, but i got news for you, it's true today. This is a crooked and perverse nation, just like it was in ancient times. Go back to the days of the Romans. Now, let me ask you this. Go back and look at the Roman Empire. Where are they today? Where's that mighty Roman Empire? Well, what about the Grecian Empire? Alexander the Great, what about them? Where are they today? What about Babylon? Remember that proud and mighty nation? Powerful, Nebuchadnezzar? Welded all kind of power. So number one, we've got to be light in a dark world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine. We've got to live in such a way so that we bring a little bit of light, a little ray of light in a dark world. That's one thing I can do. Number two, not only am I to be a light in a dark world, but I am to share the light of God's Word to a darkened world. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he said, You were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Philippians chapter 2, when the Apostle Paul said that we're sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, and then he said, holding forth the word of life. Do you know what this country needs? You know what the world needs? They need the Bible. They need God's word. Why? Because this is the book that can get us back on track. Sin derails. God has the ability to put us back on track where we need to be in life. God has the ability to change a culture through his word. And we can talk about legislation in Washington. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not good. And I'm grateful to those who are trying to make a difference in our nation. They're trying to do what's right. I appreciate that. But the bottom line is my trust is not in the political process per se. My trust is in the Word of God. You know what can restore broken families? God's Word. 
You know what can restore broken lives, lives that have been marred and broken by sin? Whether it be drug addiction, whether it be some type of alcoholic abuse, whether it be dishonesty. I mean, you just come up with any number of things. The only thing that's going to rectify that's God's Word. It was said of Paul and Silas, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. It's time to turn the world upside down. To get it where it needs to be. And how are we going to do that? We've got to be a voice for God. We've got to be willing to stand. Now listen to what Paul said. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, we don't want to be arrogant, condescending, ugly. We're not trying to hurt anyone. The goal is to help. But the bottom line is we've got to speak up. We've got to speak out. And the reason is because that's what God wants us to do. How do we change the landscape of our country? Here it is. You mark it down. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore. Make disciples of all nations. That includes the nation that we live in. If we're going to change the landscape, it's the gospel that will do it. It's the only thing that's going to change it. So how do we stay faithful in a wicked world? Hold to God's unchanging hand. That's it right there. I look back at Elijah. Elijah was such a powerful prophet. Now he got discouraged. And you remember he felt as if he were all alone. He thought he, he, thought he was the only one serving God and trying to do right. And God said, let me tell you what, I've still got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. We might feel alone as if we're all alone out here on this island, but I got news for you. There are still a lot of people that are willing to stand for what's right. So don't get discouraged. Let's try to be positive. Let's strive to be faithful. And let's get home safely. And by that I mean get home to heaven. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to come to Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. If you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, what would you need to do? Well, you've got to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And then through an obedient faith, we repent, we're baptized, God puts us in the church. We enjoy forgiveness, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.47. And then the goal is to be faithful, to be a light in a dark world. And one day we're going to meet the Lord. And he's going to tell us, well done, good and faithful servant. Will it have been worth it? And the answer is a million times over, yes, 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 it is. If you're here today and your life's not what it ought to be, and you're a child of God and you want the prayers of the church, could we pray with you and for you as we stand and sing?